everyone, and welcome to the Voorhees IP VIP podcast. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I will be your host for this episode. Today, we're speaking with Bill Oldak, who's a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Voorhees, Sater, Seymour, and Pease, and a member of the Intellectual Property and Technology Group. Bill will be discussing the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, or PTAP, and some of the proceedings that are heard before that tribunal. Bill will also briefly discuss patent reexaminations and their effects on patentees and issued patents. And with that, here's my conversation with Bill. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our inaugural edition of the Voorhees IP podcast. Uh, we're excited to have a veteran member of our intellectual property team, Bill Oldak, out of the Washington, D.C. office with us today. We're going to talk a little bit about the Patent Trial and Appeal Board and jump into some, some of the interesting uh, aspects of that. Uh, Bill has graduated from Lehigh University with a, with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and attended the Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law to get his law degree. And he's been with uh, Voorhees for 20 plus years. So he's got a great deal of experience. We're excited to hear some of the things that he has to, to provide for us today. So with that, we'll just jump right into it, Bill. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jeremy. Uh, great to be with you. Thanks. It's an honor to be here as the inaugural guest on the VIP podcast. And uh, you mentioned I've been with the firm now for 21 years, and I practiced for a few years before that. It was long enough ago that the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law was not the Moritz College of Law when I was there. So that's dating myself a bit. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into the PTAB. So um, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, what exactly is the PTAB and, and, and what's its purpose? Well, I guess to answer that question, Jeremy, you have to go back a few years to when uh, this is all related to when the United States changed its basic patent law from a first-to-invent system to a first-to-file system. The U.S. had been out of step with the rest of the world in that regard for, for years and years. So we harmonized our patent law to the rest of the world so that now whoever invents an invention, you have to be the first to file uh, to get the patent. It used to be you could be the first to invent Somebody else, however, might have been the first to file, and you'd have a fight in the uh, patent office called an interference to determine which party was the first to invent. Mm -hmm. So when we go away from the first to invent system and go to first to file, the old formation of the board, which was called the Board of Patent Appeals and Interferences, well, there weren't going to be interferences anymore, so we were going to change the name. And they also instituted a new system post-grant reviews, so the PTAB became the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, and the trials are the inter partes reviews and post-grant reviews. Yeah, so, so uh, what are some of the proceedings that PTAB would, would typically handle or do handle? Well, I mean, the, the first thing they do, it is called the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, and the appeal function did carry over from the old Board of Patent Appeals and Interferences. The appeals are still... Uh, by far the lion's share of what the board does, probably 80% or more of what they do are appeals from patent applications that have been denied or rejected uh, from the patent examiner. I looked, I think in the last month, there was like over 500 uh, appeals that were decided by the board, but only less than 100 for the review proceedings. Mm -hmm. But they have uh, the post-grant proceedings then, which is the uh, trial part of the PTAB, there are two main categories of that. There used to be a third, but that, that one sunsetted and we don't really have to, to talk about it much. There's inter partes review, which is a challenge that you can make to a patent after it has been issued for nine months. And there is a post-grant review, which is a challenge you can make to an issued patent within the first nine months 
of it being issued. And that is kind of similar to the European office proceeding where they, you can have an opposition to a granted patent right. uh, in Europe. Uh, let's, let's get into IPRs a little bit more uh, deeply. And, and what, what can somebody expect if you're going to file an IPR? What can they expect to go through? It looks like you're, you're going to have a lot of arguments that are placed. What, what kind of arguments can be put into an IPR and what can't be in there? Right. Uh, in an IPR, you're, you're basically having a mini trial on the validity of the patents. But an IPR is limited to grounds of anticipation and obviousness. And they have to be based on patents or prior other printed publication material. You can't uh, file an IPR, for example, based on the prior sale of a product. It has to be based on written materials, either a patent or some other printed matter. Also, because you're limited to anticipation and obviousness, you can't, for example, argue that the claims of the patent are not enabled or are indefinite under Section 112. If the board looks uh, at an IPR filing and the response comes to the conclusion that there may be an issue that the patent is not uh, enabled under Section 112, the board will not institute the proceeding. The board will just say, no, we don't. We think there's a potential invalidity issue here based on Section 112. That's not something we're empowered to decide, and we will not institute. And the way these things are filed, someone who wants to challenge the patent will prepare a petition for inter partes review. They'll be called the petitioner. You will file that petition, laying out all of your arguments for uh, anticipation or obviousness. You're almost invariably going to have an expert declaration supporting your petition. That's important, especially for obviousness, to have someone who can opine on the person of reason, person of ordinary skill in the art as to what would, would have been obvious or not. Right. So that's that's an important, uh, and that's also a significant upfront cost to get an expert. Right, involved. right. That's where a lot of the fees come from. Um, yeah. so, so this is literally a mini trial that can expect, but the, what, what's so beneficial from my understanding is that the, the costs are, are dramatically different than a, than a full-blown litigation in the federal federal courts. Well, that's right. If you were challenging the patent in a district court litigation, your challenge is part of, a, of an infringement case usually, and patent infringement cases can be you know, tremendously expensive. They can often get into the upper six figures or depending on the stakes involved, into the seven figures. If you have an IPR filed, uh, often a district court will stay the infringement litigation I've had, case, I've had a case recently where not just because a petition was granted, but merely on the filing of a petition, the district court stayed uh, the litigation. If you're just now litigating the validity of the patent uh, before the PTAB, your costs are going to be significantly less. Even though, the P, even though the IPR filing is fairly expensive to initially put together and file, costs from that point forward are not nearly as extreme as they are in litigation. But just to give you the context, to file an IPR petition, you can often spend in the neighborhood of $100,000 because you are, in addition to the legal work involved, you are paying an expert uh, to come up to speed to study the art and to do a declaration. And you also have filing fees, which are pretty high. It's $30,500 to file an IPR in the normal course. Some of that money can be returned if the IPR is not instituted, but you are definitely submitting a significant upfront cost to get that to get yeah. that all rolling. Yeah. So somebody looking to institute an IPR can, I mean, worst case scenario, or I mean, there is a possibility that you could be looking at a half a million dollars. 
However, yeah. this will be less than a full blown litigation. So I, the benefit is there. Correct. I, I usually I would say it's a, it'll be a bit under half a million dollars if you're taking it all the way to the end. But I could certainly imagine that in a very extreme case, it could it could get to get to that amount. But you're again saving a lot of money compared to what it would cost uh, to litigate an infringement case fully, where that the validity of the patents is going to be one of the issues uh, that you're going to be litigating. Right. So procedurally, you file the IPR petition. The other side has the opportunity, the patent owner, to file a preliminary response to the petition, which urges the board not to take the case, basically, to explain either why the petitioner is wrong or why there may be circumstantial reasons why the board should not take the case. For example, there may be district court or other tribunal proceedings that are at such a stage that they're going to be resolved before the patent trial and appeal board would resolve the IPR. There may have been earlier challenges to the patent that were unsuccessful and the board does not want to get dragged through that again to have to address the same patent. So those are circumstantial issues, discretionary, if you will, that the board will evaluate in deciding whether to institute the petition. But once the petitioner files the petition, the board will issue an institution decision within six months. And if it is instituted, the board will issue a final decision within one year of the institution. So from the filing of the petition to a final decision is going to be 18 months. And so we've talked about IPRs, their, their costs. Uh, and if you're fortunate enough, I guess, in this case, to be to be within the first nine months after issuance, what, what are the costs that, that a, a company or a patent holder could expect for, uh, for instituting a PGR, a post-grant review? Yeah, PGR, again, it's, it's similar to an IPR, but it happens only in the first nine months of the patent's issuance. Uh, and you can raise any invalidity issues in a PGR. You can raise those indefiniteness and enablement issues from Section 112 that I mentioned earlier. So if the patent issues and it clearly is, it has a negative impact on uh, a client's market position or ability to raise capital or whatever, especially if that patent is weak on many levels, the client may want to take an immediate action by filing a PGR. The drawback to a PGR is, however, that because you're allowed to raise invalidity issues in a PGR uh, based on Section 112, if you file a PGR and don't raise those issues, you could be barred from raising them later if you are sued on that patent. Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, in an IPR, any art that's argued in an IPR can be barred from arguing that art in a later litigation but the estoppel rules may not be quite as severe as they can be for PGR. Estoppel is one of those issues that is continuing to be litigated and sorted out as to what the effect of it is going to be because the estoppel occurs when you try to then assert grounds in a district court litigation. So very different district courts we might expect will be interpreting those, those restrictions differently. And we, to this point, have not seen so many cases bubble up from different courts to the federal circuit, let alone to the Supreme Court, where we have really solid guidance on how widely the estoppel effects are going to be litigated. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So yeah, so you've given us several reasons why a company or a patent owner would want to file an IPR PGR. Since 2012, the PTAB has gotten this moniker, this patent killer, yeah, essentially an enemy of the small inventor. Can you, can you elaborate a little on that and what that means? Why is the PTAB given that name as a patent killer? Well, part of that is 
and, and this goes back to the idea, and again, when, when I mentioned earlier, when the U.S. went from the first to invent system to the first to file system, a lot of small inventors took issue with that. Uh, the U.S. has long had kind of the small inventor mindset to itself. I mean, you go back, and he was a bit of an entrepreneur, but you go back to Thomas Edison and Eli Whitney and uh, all of these individuals that are celebrated in American lore as individual inventors. The, there was always a comfort to the small inventor of saying, if I'm the first to invent this, even if somebody finds out about it and steals it, if I file my patent application and I can prove I was the first to invent this, I'm going to get the patent. And that's no longer the case. Obviously, if somebody steals or derives a patent from somebody else, they shouldn't be eligible for a patent. But hypothetically, if a small inventor invents a widget on you know, day August 1st, and a larger company coincidentally happens to develop it on September 1st, and the large company files uh, a patent on October 1st, but the small inventor doesn't get around to doing it for funding or other reasons until November 1st, it's the large company now that's going to get the patent as opposed to the small inventor under the old system. So there, ever since the PTAB came into being, there has been a lot of firepower aimed at it from counsel who represent uh, small inventors. And because of that, there's always been, I think, an eagerness on the part of the small inventor community to cast PTAB in uh, unflattering terms, in terms of their impact on, on patents. I mean, it is true that when the Patent Trial and Appeal Board first started doing IPRs, uh, the cancellation rate for issued claims was fairly high. When you take into account what percentage of IPRs are instituted and then what percentage of the claims are denied or canceled. I think it was upwards of 60 to 70% of cancel of petitioned claims were canceled. That number is significantly lower today. I mean, for the most recent fiscal year, the institution rate was 56%. So really just over half of the petitions were instituted. And then overall, only about 30% of the challenged claims are being invalidated. So you know, well under 50%. So I think to the extent that that the death panel was ever a thing, it's much less of a thing now. Yeah, this whole David and Goliath scenario has played out. We've seen these anecdotal, you know, the stories of small inventors being, you know, taken into these, these proceedings by these large companies that can bankroll significantly more. And that's led to another controversy, which I want to lead into is, is about the PTAB judges themselves and, and the issues surrounding them being, being placed in the position that they are. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, a couple of things on what you said there, Jeremy. First, I mean, when you talk about the, the small inventors being disadvantaged, the IPR process, as I mentioned, often results in a court case being stayed. And that in and of itself is a disadvantage to the small inventor, uh, because a lot of times the small inventor hires an, a, an attorney to do an infringement case based on a contingency. As long as you're going through a, an infringement litigation, you've got leverage on the defendant because you're, you're prosecuting uh, an infringement case. If the case gets stayed for an IPR, the small inventor's leverage is decreased significantly, while at the same time, the small inventor's patent is being attacked in a proceeding where there is no you know, financial upside right. for the inventor. So depending on the uh, arrangement that it has with counsel, he may have to outlay fees or you know, do, a, do a defense that may not be as fully formed as, as it otherwise would be. But to that point, uh, that's another reason why the small inventor community has kept going after the PTAB. And in the recent case you were describing, it was actually, it was a, it was a 
it was a smaller company, not, not an individual, but a smaller company. But it, at any rate, the controversy arose over the appointment of the judges. And these are administrative law judges who are uh, sit on the TTAB. The decisions of those judges then can be appealed uh, to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Uh, but those decisions of the PTAB do not go through the director of the patent office, which is a Senate-confirmed position. So the argument was that these judges were not acting as inferior officers, but were acting as principal officers who should have been Senate-confirmed uh, to get their position, much like Article Three judges, mm-hmm. but unlike, for example, Social Security Administration judges whose decisions are reviewed by the director of the Social Security Administration. The Supreme Court held that the judges' decisions need to be subject to review by the director of the patent office in order to satisfy the constitutional standard. So in response to that, patent office has issued interim guidelines that say that any final written decision now of the uh, PTAB, uh, any panel of the PTAB, is subject to review by the director. What that means is that A losing party can seek review from the director, which the director is not obligated to provide, or the director can, on his or her own accord, go in and review uh, a decision of any PTAB panel. And in this way, you have the kind of the stamp of approval that says one way or the other, the director has explicitly or implicitly upheld board's decision, and the Supreme Court held that that will pass muster. So just, just in the past week, we saw that the very first passes from the director of those uh, decisions has has happened. And and to no one's surprise, the director upheld all of the decisions that he was asked to review. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the next few months, the director makes a point of overruling one of them, just to show that this is not some uh, empty or... uh, Right. I was going to ask you that. See, what what would be the scenario that the director would overrule the PTAB? I mean, that that seems like you'd have to have a unique circumstance, but to your point, to show that, hey, listen, this isn't just a broken record here. (laughs) We will overrule some, but uh, what's your opinion on that? It's hard to say. I mean, the PTAB decisions that exist can get reversed by the federal circuit uh, on occasion. So the the director may look at one and, and see some I don't know if there will be a glaring error in one of them. For example, what if the uh, PTAB panel uh, decided a claim construction issue in a way that the director thought violated Section 112, which is not something that the PTAB is permitted to do in an IPR, the director could step in and say, well, you've decided this, but actually it raises a 112 issue and that's improper, so I'm going to vacate this or send it back for further consideration or even potentially dismiss it if the board, if the uh, director believes it's a, a Section 112 issue that the board should never have gotten involved with. Right, right. These are interesting events. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, these just happened weeks ago. So this is, or, yeah, just last week for when we're recording this. We just have a few more minutes left, but I wanted to switch gears and talk a little bit about re-examination. That's another another PTAB, you know, suit that we could bring or matter that we could bring. Could you talk a little bit about what what does an ex parte re-examination of a patent entail? Sure. And and a re-examination has been around for years and years. Uh, It predates the the PTAB. And and frankly, re-exams now are not under the purview uh, of the PTAB. Uh, Re-examination is literally a re-examination by the Examination Bureau uh, of the Patent Office. Basically, a re-examination is a way, uh, it can be filed by a third party, or it can be filed by the patent owner itself, unlike an IPR, which can only be filed by another party. But these days, 
in the old days before IPRs, if I'm a, a defendant in a patent case and the other side's patent, I think, is suspect, I might file for a re-exam of the other party's patent. And maybe I'll get my litigation state and we'll see what happens. Now, most accused infringers will go the IPR route. But for a re-exam, uh, it's still very useful because of the patent owner itself can have its own patent re-examined. So let's suppose I have a patent issued and I, went, I go to sue somebody. But in the meantime, I find out that there is a piece of prior art out there that I was not aware of during prosecution of the patent, but that may impact my ability to sue on the patent. Before I file suit, I might want to go to the patent office myself and say, hey, patent office, I just found out about this patent, which may raise a substantial question of patentability about my patent. I would like you to please re-examine my patent. And the patent office can say, no, we don't think there's any issue here and re-exam request denied. Or the patent office can say, okay, yeah, there may be an issue here. Let's, uh, re let's open up uh, the examination again of your patent. And then this proceeds ex, part, uh, ex parte, just between myself, the patent owner, and the patent office, just like regular examination of a patent. And the patent office can issue rejections. I can make amendments. I can make arguments to try to, I may have to narrow the claims of the patent, but I would come out with a patent that in many respects has been strengthened because I took what may be the worst prior art out there and got it, if you will, washed through the patent office and come out with maybe narrower, but stronger claims. Right. So when a patent is issued, you, you, you have this presumption of validity and these re-exams are a way the patent owner can come in and bolster and strengthen their patents. It's a great way to to prepare yourself for litigation. Bill, is there a, a way that that could be, your patent could be rejected when you go into re-exam? Absolutely, I mean, that is a risk. If you go in with this new prior art, the office may say, yeah, we, we think this new prior art is so uh, devastating that we don't think there is anything, any patent left for you to get. And uh, they cancel the entire thing. That, that is a very rare occurrence, but it's it's not unheard of. Right. So there, there is a risk to it, but if the prior art is that, Rel relevant and uh, devastating, you're still better off filing uh, for re-exam and taking care of it that way than maybe exposing yourself to, you know, a very bad litigation. So. Yeah, full-blown litigation, which could cost a, a lot of money and take a lot of time. So excellent. Bill, I appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to discuss on these points here? If not, we're going to conclude our first podcast. Well, again, it's a thrill to, to be uh, number one on the list, and there's always more to talk about with IPRs and re-examinations. I think we could uh, do this for a couple hours, Jeremy, and we would not, we would have barely scratched the surface of everything we can talk about it. So that's why if uh, someone's out there listening to this and they want to know more, they should contact their Vori's attorney and uh, see if we can help it out. Agreed. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Bill. Okay, Jeremy. Thanks. This has been an episode of the Vori's IP VIP podcast. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to speak to either myself or any of the guests, please feel free to reach out to us. You can contact us through Vori's website or via the Vori's Intellectual Property Updates webpage on LinkedIn. If you have a suggestion for a podcast topic or would like to recommend a particular guest, we'd love to hear from you. My name is Jeremy Harrison, and I hope you can join us next time.